you want to sing with me? A one, a three, a four, a take me out to the Take me out with the crowd. Buy me some some cracker jack. I don't care if I ever get back. Let me root. Wood, 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 home day. I don't win it, I'll say. Four, it's one, two, three strikes out One final inning in St. Louis. Heads down, we stare at our ticket stubs, walk in circles anxious to find our seats in Bush Stadium. Above the beer man hawking Budweiser, amid the scent of salty baked pretzels and Homer dogs, I imagine Tom Hanks repeating, There's no crying in baseball. Too late. My tears erupt with a glimpse of the green. The outfield manicured in its familiar crisscross checkerboard pattern, a backdrop for the grass embossed gateway arch. One might think I was there to watch my son play in the World Series, or I myself, a ten year old child who just caught a fly ball off McGuire. Instead, I walk alongside my dad to share a hot dog in a moment, to revisit one of my favorite childhood memories. My hope is for more days, more years even though I know it to be, well, unlikely. For the first time, my dad splurges on the good seats, cushy and comfortable, just a few rows up between home plate and first base, the ones you pay extra for, the ones that tonight are priceless. Four batters into the first inning, Holiday hits a home run. We watch the pyrotechnic celebration. I look at my dad. He's smiling. And in that moment, squeezing his hand, I know. Any pain plaguing his cancer-riddled bones has vanished. With the embers I watch float down like flashing pinwheels in a purple sky. And it is my heart exploding with fireworks. Hello there. Welcome to this special edition of No Extra Words, the Flash Fiction Podcast, the second annual baseball opening day special. My name is Chris Baker Dersh. I'm your producer and editor. I received so many submissions for this episode. So many people, so many writers wanted to be part of it. And I easily could have done too. I had to turn down some awesome work to to narrow it down to what you're about to hear. And it's going to be pretty long. So I'm going to try not to talk too much. Um, the only possible way I could narrow down what I was receiving was to get into themes bigger than baseball, which is why I'm so glad that we started with Sean Saunders' poem. Poetry can be so raw and can take you to such a place. And April is not only the start of baseball season, but it is also National Poetry Month, which longtime listeners to this show know is a big deal for me. And there will be more on that. But such an honor to start with a poem, and especially this poem. I want to send my heartfelt thank you to Sean for sending it. It's a powerful piece of writing, and I know it is emotional to share that much of your family with a large audience. Um, and so, Sean, blessings to you and your family as we listen to that. It struck me pretty personally as well, 
um, don't have the same experience, but regular listeners to the show know that my dad, who taught me to love baseball, started this year very sick. And the good news is for me that my dad is doing great. He is actually planning a summer trip to the Baseball Hall of Fame in Cooperstown, which is a place he has not been since 1978. He is thrilled. And so we in my family go into the spring feeling so lucky to have my dad with us and healthy. And the theme, one of the themes that kept emerging and that the beginning of this episode especially is built around is baseball and relationships. It's more than a game. It's the people we experience it with. It's the stories they share. It's the history that gets passed. Coming up, we have three pieces of prose in a row. The great thing about this episode is it's total potpourri. It's got fiction, nonfiction, and poetry in it. Next up is Susan Vollenweider. Susan is a former contributor to the show. She was on our very first Valentine's Day special back in Valentine's Day 2016. Susan is one half of the duo of the History Chicks. She's a podcasting buddy. Susan is joined by a guest star in her reading of her story. I won't give away who that is. All I will say is I'm waiting for his podcast, and I will totally subscribe when he starts it, so get on that. Following Susan's story is Niles Reddick's first pitch, which is hysterical, especially given all the conversations about first pitches happening this spring. I will just leave that there. And then we're debuting a brand new segment. Regular listeners know that 2017 has been the year of segments where in and amongst our short stories, we throw in a few minutes of something different for the show. And we've done writers talking about their writing spaces and we've done read a tweet from social media, various things. And so we have a new segment. Again, I won't spoil it. I will just say that it was something that had to be aired to sort of bookend what happened last baseball season. And then I will be back to talk a little bit about some of the other themes that come later in the episode and to introduce our final couple pieces of work. So I will turn you over to Susan Bullenweider and I'll be back in a little bit. Oh yeah, I have to say, regular listeners probably know who the guest star was at the very top of the show. And I think I might bring him back in a little bit to talk to you too. So stay tuned for that. My Way to Baseball Mom by Susan Vollenweider And now, the end is near, and so I face the final curtain. For the last three baseball seasons, hearing that song meant one thing. On the ride to his game, the kid in the backseat had morphed from 11-year-old jokester to serious ball player. Noah's pregame ritual included playing the Frank Sinatra album, Nothing But the Best, in a specific order, beginning at Come Fly Away With Me and ending with the one that gave him the swagger he needed to play his best game, My Way. And in my own way, it's also the soundtrack of my morph from Just Mom to Baseball Mom. Regrets? I've had a few, but then again, too few to mention. The last time I heard my way was a couple weeks ago. The excited newness of the baseball season had long worn off. The team's record was part of their history, and there was only one more game to play. I've been the mom to baseball players for 14 years. When my oldest son, Luke, started playing at four, I quickly learned that baseball parenting wasn't all that fun. Practices were boring. T-ball games had moments of cute, but overall, also boring. When my husband decided to coach Luke's team, I was more than happy to play second fiddle. And I was not a very enthusiastic fiddle. T-ball to coach pitch to machine pitch to kid pitch. I went to the games, picked up the parent lingo. Good eye. Nice cut. You've got this. 
all of which I spoke, not yelled, at the right time. Mostly. Yes, there were times, I'm sure you knew, when I bit off more than I could chew. It was inevitable that son number two would follow his brother onto the field, and I began what I personally considered my path of most resistance. With son number one and my husband on a team of their own, Noah's baseball participation was all on me. T-ball to coach pitch to machine pitch to kid pitch. I bundled in a blanket when practices began in early spring, chose shorts to conceal bleacher butt sweat through the games of summer, and then bundled again for fall ball. But through it all, when there was doubt, I ate it up and spit it out. But I was a dutiful mom. I sat repeating my cheering mantras while picking field dirt out of my eyes and teeth. There were games that I hated, truly hated. Sports skills are hard learned, and while that's the point of playing, watching that learning process is often painful. I read a lot of books. I missed a lot of plays because I was reading a book. I was not a great ball parent. But then Noah found his baseball anthem music, and something changed. I've loved, I've laughed and cried, I've had my fill, my share of losing. As we were listening to my way en route to the last game of the summer season, I was surprisingly melancholy. Without any effort, I had come to really enjoy the game. I put down my books and discovered that I had learned the rules through osmosis. The loud cheering coming out of my mouth wasn't rote phrases. It was happy, encouraging, or disappointed commentary. The record shows I took the blows and did it my way. Sitting in the ball field parking lot with Frank hitting the end of his song, I couldn't remember a specific moment that I went from passive parent, happy that the season was over, to involved baseball mom, excited for fall ball. But I'd gotten there my way. Special thanks to Noah Vollenweider. Thank you, Susan and Noah, for sharing that story with us. I often think that Susan's life is my life in 10 years. And so before we go on to the other stories, as promised, I have a very quick interview with my favorite baseball player. My name is James. What do you want to talk about today, James? Baseball. What do you like about baseball? The players' baseballs. The players' baseballs. Who teaches you about baseball? Grandpa. Yeah. What is Grandpa going to teach you? How to slide and catch and hit and run. Yeah. And slide. What else do you want to say about baseball? Do you like to watch baseball? Yeah. What's better, watching baseball or playing baseball? Playing baseball. I'm going to play baseball outside today. First Pitch by Niles Reddick. I tried to like baseball when I was a kid, but I didn't. I couldn't throw or catch, but I could run. Because of imagination, I don't often pay much attention to anyone or anything, hence not a star pupil, as old, yellowed, and musty report cards clearly reflect. A friend of mine's dad even took me and him to Atlanta to see the Braves' Hank Aaron play. But I was more interested in the planes coming and going and the Atlanta skyline from the Braves Stadium than the game. This backdrop made for an interesting reaction when I was asked to throw out the first pitch of the University of Memphis and Middle Tennessee State University baseball game held at the Jackson Generals 
B team versus Seattle Mariners stadium in Jackson, Tennessee. At first I was flabbergasted. I couldn't actually recall when I'd thrown a baseball. It had to be elementary school or when I was involved with the Royal Ambassadors of the Baptist Church, where I'd used the Lord's name in vain when I got hit by a baseball and nearly got thrown out of the church. The minister had come to visit with my parents. They'd been exasperated with me, but knew that no amount of churching was going to stop the invasion of genes I'd inherited from wilder relatives on both their sides. In addition to my initial reaction, I wondered why they'd chosen me, until one of the athletic department public relations officials said, you've got to be pretty good if you're related to Josh. Josh Reddick from the Oakland A's, formerly from the Boston Red Sox. Yes, I had been asked by people from time to time, and what I said was, yes, we are distant cousins and I have never met him. I never, no matter how bad I wanted to name drop and make connections, a true Southern behavior, did I misrepresent. So I laughed that off and told my wife and kids three days before the big event I needed to practice. We went into the front yard. I marked off 60 feet 6 inches from the edge of the driveway, and my son Nicholas and daughter Audrey got their gloves, and I started moving my arm up and down and around to make sure it wouldn't come out of its socket. I must have looked like an idiot to anyone driving by our house. After a few minutes, though, I had to admit I wasn't bad at all. Out of 40-something throws each night before the big game, almost every one of my throws had been 70 feet and dead center. One did go into the road, and one did hit the bricks on the house, but the others were excellent. I felt good and confident, and though my shoulder had a numbing pain from activating long dormant muscles and ligaments that probably had shriveled and disconnected from lack of use through the years, I felt okay. Like maybe I wouldn't end up in the emergency room or kill someone as I had almost done golfing years before, when my ball knocked someone's dad unconscious at the driving range. On the night of the first pitch, the weather wasn't good. It was projected to rain. I had bought a long sleeve shirt, school colors, to wear, and I asked my kids to accompany me because there were TV cameras and I thought when I'm dead and gone it would be a good memory for them. They introduced me over the loudspeaker and television cameras were recording as I stepped up to the mound, beautifully raked reddish brown soil, base plates clean and white, and grass manicured and green. It was a stark contrast to the last days of winter, as if spring was just around the corner. I think I was so nervous that I didn't pay attention at all, and just threw the ball, 70 feet, square onto home plate. Great pitch, the catcher said when my ball hit his glove and some of the crowd clapped. I had done it. I had proven I could, and then I had fantasies that maybe I was really better than I remembered all those years ago. And on the way home, I told my kids I should have played baseball more. And now, a blast from our past, from the No Extra Words Archives, 2016. 1969, All Over Again, by Angela Lombarda. It's 1969, All Over Again, was Janet's best friend Amy's anguished cry that only a Cub fan could know. It was October 2015, and the Cubs had done it again. The ghosts of the Bartman Ball of 2003 and the collapses of 1984 and 1969 loomed heavily in Janet's memory. But Janet knew she would always be a Cub fan. It all started in the 1960s. All the kids in the neighborhood liked going to the prairie. That's what the large, undeveloped lot at the end of the dead-end block was called. The area was a weed-filled group of hills and valleys with a tiny swamp plunk in the middle. 
Janet, Amy, and their other friend Billy would catch small toads and keep them as pets. But the biggest catch of all was Billy's green frog. Cubs fever had swept the neighborhood and all the children were fans. And there was no other player in the world like Ernie Banks. So Billy named his beloved frog Ernie. But one summer day, Ernie jumped away, breaking Billy's heart, thought never to be seen again. The following spring, Billy's dad was digging up some frozen ground in the garden. There he found a slumbering Ernie, still alive and ready to be Billy's pride and joy again. It was fun making banners that said, Go Cubs, in preparation for that fateful day. Amy's mom drove all the kids in her gigantic Ford to Wrigley Field, where they waited in line to purchase tickets that cost less than $3. But even a player like Ernie Banks couldn't save the Cubs against the Mets pitching that year, and somehow their hopes for a series win fizzled like a dried-up leaf in the hot August sun. The full impact didn't affect the 10-year-old Janet and Amy as much as the fact that they couldn't keep using their banners anymore. Go Cubs was put in baseball mothballs. Joy swirled around the city of Chicago in 2003. The Cubs had captivated Janet and Amy again. All eyes were on Wrigley. The baseball world was the Cubs' oyster until the foul ball. A pall fell over the Windy City. Disappointment lingered for Janet until 2015. The young sleeper of a team re-energized Janet and Amy's love for baseball once more with a great season. Go Cubs was reborn, and the hopes for a movie prophecy fulfilled. But the Mets pitching once again made sure that the elusive pennant dream jumped away from the longtime friends, just like Ernie the Frog did long ago. But Janet knew she would always be a Cub fan, because there was always spring and a chance to find Ernie again. Astrid from Sweden by Bill McStow Flaherty's eyes landed on the Crawford boxes. So, the fellow next to him said, You make the trip once a year? That's right, Flaherty told him. Down on the field, the pitcher was in trouble and stepped off the mound. Flaherty knew there were kids in the stands, or at home in front of the television, watching the hurlers every move. In Little League, Flaherty chose to imitate Nolan Ryan, while his friends were throwing like Mike Torres. The fellow shifted again. Still, there's one thing I don't understand, he said. How does a Boston kid grow up to be an Astros fan? Flaherty remembered fourth grade, and his classmates rushing to the front of the room when his teacher announced that the letters from Sweden had arrived. He opened his envelope hastily, managing to catch the wallet-sized photo of Astrid before it hit the floor. She was a pretty girl with blonde hair and blue eyes. She wore a red butterfly barrette. Astrid wrote that she really liked horses and thought people should ride horses instead of driving cars. She also liked American baseball. Her favorite team was the Houston Astros, because Astros sounds like Astrid. She left out the first O in Houston. Unlike the rest of the fourth graders, Flaherty's exchange with his pen pal lasted until high school. It was he who penned what turned out to be the final letter. The pitcher climbed the hill, and the batter stepped into the box. Flaherty repeated the fellow's question. How did a Boston kid grow up to be an Astros fan? He smiled. Simple, he said. I couldn't find a horse to ride. Hello, it is Chris Baker, Darsh, your producer and editor, interjecting myself once more into this episode before we close it out. 
I changed my mind. I decided to squeeze in an extra piece of prose because I think Astrid from Sweden ties in really nicely with this theme of baseball and relationships. This question of who you root for is such a personal and such a deep question. And in a lot of families, it almost feels genetic. You know, I had a friend, she and I were traveling through St. Louis and we visited the Cardinals Museum very quickly just because we were driving through. And the look on her face when she walked in and I said, what's going on? She said, just never tell my dad I was here. I could never tell my dad that I was standing someplace where the Cardinals were celebrated. Can't happen. And so Astrid from Sweden is a great take on how people impact our relationship with this game. I have one more piece that I'm going to share with you before we close out. But before I do, I have to give a couple of brief announcements. If you are interested in show notes or more details about anybody we've heard from today, please visit us at noextrawords.wordpress.com. That is where all of that stuff lives. No Extra Words will be back with a regularly scheduled programming episode in mid-April. I always appreciate regular listeners, you letting me take over the show with something different. And so we'll be back to normal. We will continue a celebration of National Poetry Month and we'll be sharing short fiction. You may hear my buddy in the background telling me it's time to, to head up and move out of here. Before I do, I want to give credit to the music you are hearing throughout today's episode is the Haydn Quartet singing Take Me Out to the Ball Game," which is in the public domain. That recording comes to us courtesy of the Free Music Archive. If you stick around to the very end of this episode, following Carolyn Martin's great poem about a woman's relationship with this game, is a little preview of another podcast that I do that is all about women's baseball. And I just wanted to give you a little snippet of that. If you stick around to the end, I hope you'll check that out. In the meantime, I will see you in a couple of weeks here on No Extra Words, the Flash Fiction Podcast. Happy baseball season. It's good I'm slow. Sure must hurt when this gets hit. He pinched my breast so hard, so fast, I cocked my fists and stood shock still. Never saw this kid before, never would again. This white bread boy gawking at soft mounds beneath my shirt, as if he'd never seen a girl or knew what one's about. He'd caught me in a break from smacking balls to Jackie in left field to Louie right of second base. My boys would zip them back quick as I could smash them out. Sweat dripping down my face, I froze, enraged by what this kid had done. I had him by two years, an inch at least, a few more pounds than I could calculate. No doubt I'd take him down. I sifted through the list, a bloody nose, a blackened eye, a broken bone somewhere, a kick in parts he'd not forget. But narrowing my choice, I caught dumb innocence in eyes that couldn't see that what he'd done showed less than real concern for how I'd hurt. They seem amazed my anger wasn't outright gratefulness. Sometimes I think it's good I'm slow to figure out what's going on. I slack my fists and pushed him down the first baseline. My finger in his chest, I taught this kid a rule of etiquette. What is at a girl? At a girl is Chris and AJ. Two longtime friends who think you should hear the untold story of women in baseball. Want to hear what that sounds like? Nobody talks about all the good things that also happen. 
and the good experiences they have. Well, he says, I want you to come back uh, east and play uh, professional baseball. I says, you're out of your mind. Oh, my God. Nolan Ryan, Sandy Colfax had nothing on me. And I've been all over the world, and I'm living proof that you don't actually need to get a job in professional baseball to have a career as an umpire. What you can do, take me out to the ball game. And it's time. It's our time. They watched this girl hit. They could not believe the bat speed that she had. So, Chloe, you are nine years old. Is that right? Yes. And how long have you been playing baseball? Mm, I don't remember. (laughs) Okay. So you've been playing baseball as long as you can remember a special culture. The chatter that you might hear during an AAGPBL game might include something like, you gotta have Pepper over here, let me hear you over here, I can't hear you over there. I love that. So one of the things the history chicks like to do is they like to drop a woman into history, and one of the things I like to do is I like to drop a woman into baseball history. Okay, this is going to be interesting for me because uh, the woman that we're going to talk about today is the same age as me, so... (laughs) Well, it's funny. It's going to feel like you're dropping me into history. (laughs) She's the same age as somebody else, too. Because in 1989, Ken Griffey Jr. played his rookie year with the Seattle Mariners at the age of 19. Okay, I'm in good company. (laughs) And on March 17th, 1989, Julie Croto played her first game with the St. Mary's Seahawks, becoming the first woman to play NCAA baseball. I feel like we should call this show Six Degrees of the AAGPBL because we can't let an episode go by without talking about them in some way, shape, or form. And she was nicknamed Pretty Bonnie Baker. And I'll be honest with you, I don't like that nickname. And so in my research, I was thinking the fabulous Bonnie Baker. If you want to hear our special brand of storytelling, please tune in to the Atta Girl podcast wherever you find podcasts or visit us at womensbaseball.libsyn.com. Definitely tune in April 15th for our Jackie Robinson Day special when we talk about the top moments for African-American women in baseball history.